In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> can, can anything good come from Nazareth? That's the question. Can anything good come from Nazareth? It's at the heart of this passage, and it's asked by uh, this man, Nathaniel. He's also known as Bartholomew in the other Gospels. Uh, and to understand the question, we need to know a little bit about Nazareth. So bear with me. Nazareth didn't have much going on. It was a town, maybe even a small city, but it was not um, uh, of any kind of distinction. Uh, there was nothing going on politically, economically. It was sort of uh, surrounded by hills, and there were no major roads or rivers that went near Nazareth. It was associated with none of the big names of the Old Testament. Um, furthermore, it was uh, known for its mixed blood and therefore suspect practice of Judaism. So it's not only um, not, it's sort of not large, it's also a slightly boring place to be from uh, and a little bit suspicious. And so when Nathaniel asked this question, what he's really saying is because the carpenter prophet comes from Nazareth, doesn't that disqualify him from being the real thing? Well, okay, we should recognize what's going on here because Nathaniel is doing what we all do. He is categorizing someone. He has, he has learned one fact about where someone comes from or possibly how old they are or what kind of car they drive and he is making a lot of assumptions. Uh, in, in, I lived in Connecticut for many years and the idea that anything good could come from Bridgeport was, uh, you know, you just knew, don't hire an accountant, a lawyer, pretty much avoid Bridgeport at all costs. Um, you know, can anything good come from Scranton? That's why that show was, uh, was set there, The Office. Um, I don't know what it is for you, but this is not just the unexpected place, but the place that you actively rule out as being somewhere where you can receive any wisdom or input from. And again, it's not just Nathaniel that does this. We all categorize incessantly. We just tend not to voice those categorizations within the earshot of the person who's coming our way. Um, and, you know, this is a, in one sense, this is a passage about how mistaken our categorizations tend to be. I mean, must I trot out that chestnut about Tom Brady being the 199th pick in the 2000 NFL draft. We don't really know anything about anything. And those who pretend to definitely don't. But don't take my word for it. Maybe over Christmas you had the immense pleasure of seeing the movie The Holdovers. If you haven't seen it yet, you really should see it. It's a fantastic movie that I can unequivocally uh, endorse. It's a grace bomb of a film, and it just won a bunch of Golden Globes this week. Now, if you've never seen, if you haven't seen the movie yet, it's about a boarding school in 1970, and about a teacher named Paul Hunnam, who's played by Paul Giamatti. He teaches at Barton Academy, and uh, this happens over Christmas when uh, certain kids uh, who don't have any place to go have to remain. They're held over over the break. Now, Paul Hunnam is not a well-liked teacher. And so he gets this job. No one wants the job. 
He is, uh, Paul Hunnam, you see, is a strict teacher, kind of almost to the point of caricature. He holds his students in contempt. And uh, he calls them at one point lazy, vulgar, rancid little Philistines. <laughs> so I don't think he likes them. Uh, he sees these young uh, men as born, having been born with silver spoons in their mouths and uh, all expecting to skate by their entire lives. We have uh, words for people like this, uh, but he certainly sees it as a pejorative. The antidote to their entitlement is academic rigor and detention, clearly, punishment. Um, as film critic uh, Richard Brody wrote in the New York Times, uh, Hunnam is a teacher of his subject, not a teacher of his students, not least because he takes them to be spoiled rich kids. Now, one of the spoiled rich kids in his care is a young man named Angus Tully. Angus Tully thought he was going to St. Kitts over Christmas, but his mom got remarried and wants to go on a honeymoon with her new husband. And so he gets left there. He's a bit of a, uh, a wise aleck, you might call, a smart aleck. And um, he's not very well liked by his um, peers. He's certainly not well liked by the administration or his teachers. We find out this is, he's been to several schools and Barton is just one of them. And so everyone has everyone in a category in this movie. Everyone has everyone in a category. The students see Mr. Hunnam as a crotchety old relic with zero to offer them in the way of wisdom or guidance, someone to be endured, tolerated perhaps, hopefully escaped and rebelled against. Hunnam sees the students as entitled rich brats who need what's coming to them, and his role is simply to crack the metaphorical whip in this regard. And yet the entire movie, what makes it such a beautiful Christmas movie, is that it, it, it details the unraveling of these initial categories. It exudes hope because in each case, the category is burst. The boy, Angus, has suffered and is actively suffering from neglect, abandonment, and simply indifference. The man, Hunnam, is, in fact, has a story of his own, is capable of warmth and charity and tenderness, the type of which the boy has never experienced. We watch as they soften over the course of this break that they both sought to avoid like Nazareth. We watch as they take the rap for one another. I won't spoil anything except for the Christmas that was supposed to be a bust turns out to be the most memorable, the hinge upon which each uh, individual's life turns. So can anything good come from being held over? Yes, 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 and yes. And indeed, that is the lesson at the heart of this passage. It's not just that we shouldn't judge by outward appearances, though sure, yes, it's that, but it's that the best things in life, the most necessary and in fact gracious things, come from the unlikeliest of places. The blind spot, you might say. This is so pronounced throughout the whole Bible that we should call it a principle. I call it the Nazareth principle. God does not show up in St. Kitts, but in Bethlehem, in the place you do everything you can to avoid being stuck on grounds over Christmas. And this Nazareth principle extends beyond geography. It extends to the fact 
that in your own life and in the lives of those you love, out of trouble and wounds, disappointments, closed doors, that's where the actual breakthroughs of life arrive. Think about it. In the Bible, a young, small shepherd boy becomes king, while the tallest and most obvious is rejected. Jesus tells of a tax collector, a, a real villain who receives mercy while the religious leader remains distanced from God, caught in his own web of self-righteousness. A mustard seed, we are told, grows to become the largest plant, a tiniest amount of yeast leavens a significant amount of dough. And even on Christmas, in Epiphany, we remember the fact that the uppity pagan, aggressively pagan astrologers, the Magi, as well as the grimy outcast shepherds are the ones who get the front row seat to the manger. This is the Nazareth principle, and it's tremendously hopeful because what it means for you is that God works and acts and moves and stirs in ways that exceed and often defy our imaginations. God works with that person in that situation, in that place, and in that season, which means he works with you. So we are wrong about our categories. You were wrong about your own categories. I mean, where is your own personal Nazareth, the thing that you're embarrassed about, what which you leave off of your resume that you do not mention to people when you meet them, the thing that you work to hide, that you actively dis and distance yourself from? Well, odds are God does not view that thing the way that you do. He may even be preparing you to speak to you through it. I'll give you one example, then I'm finished. Mary Carr, the wonderful poet and memoirist, wrote uh, her third memoir is called Lit, and it's her memoir of recovery from addiction. And it's an account in which uh, she, like many people who are initially getting sober, takes it upon herself to invalidate her recovery program. She thinks she's going to be the first to see through it and reveal AA to be the sham that it clearly is. And so she flaunts her sponsor's advice to ask the first person she meets in the program what she should do about her failing marriage. And so what does she do? She, she seeks counsel from a schizophrenic named Jack. Jack is the sort of kind of unofficial mascot of their group and he often is found sweeping the floor. Sometimes he wears a, a, a hat made out of tin foil. Um, but he's, you know, you never know what you're going to get from Jack, okay? So this is what she writes. She finds Jack, she corners him, and she tells him all about her uh, failing marriage. And she says this, Eventually I wind down and ask, what should I do? And I wait for the word salad of his scrambled cortex to spew forth. Instead, his eyes meet mine evenly, and he says, as it seems everybody says, you should pray about it. But what if I don't believe, I asked Jack. You can't will feeling. What Jack says issues from some still true place that could not be extinguished by all the schizophrenia his genetic code could muster. And it sounds something like this. Get on your knees 
and find some quiet space inside yourself, a little sunshine right about here. Jack holds his hands in a ball shape about mid-chest saying, let go, let go. I want to surrender, Mary says, but I have no idea what that means. So he goes on with a level gaze and a steady tone. He says, yield up what scares you. Yield up what makes you want to scream and cry. Enter into that quiet. It's a cathedral. It's an empty football stadium with all the lights on. And pray to be an instrument of peace. That where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is conflict, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Mary responds, what if I get no answer there? Well, Jack says, if God hasn't spoken, do nothing. Go quietly and shine. Wait. Those not impelled to act must remain in the cathedral. He kisses his index finger and plants it in the middle of my forehead, and I swear it burns like it had eucalyptus on it, like a coal from the archangel onto the mouth of Isaiah. Now to Mary who happens to be an accomplished poet of the highest order. This supremely unexpected expression straight from Nazareth means a great deal. It is the only thing that could cut through her baloney with a hot knife. In her life, it seems something good could only come from Nazareth. And yet one more thing, lest we think this is simply a principle You see, Nathanael, in his question, he is scoffing at Jesus. But Jesus does not respond in kind to Nathanael. He does not scoff at the scoffer. He does not deconstruct his categories. No, Jesus praises him for his honesty and his candor. Finally, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Finally, someone not pretending that they don't categorize. Bring it in. And the result of this small grace is that Nathaniel goes on to become one of the 12 disciples. My friends, the word to you this morning is that God does not scoff at you either. Whatever your own Nazareth may be, whatever it is you are distancing yourself from, whatever blind spot you cannot even see, God does not relate to you on the basis of your categorization of him or of others. Well, that's actually not entirely true, is it? No, God does put you in a category, the only category that matters, the category of those whom he loves, of those he came to forgive and to redeem, for whom he shed blood. And this is a true saying and worthy to believe, be believed, a saying about which there is no deceit. Amen.